Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the In The Know Property Podcast. I'm Jack Henderson, the founder of Henderson Advocacy. Frank Raidi, mate, we're back, first one of the year. Very good, very good to it's be good back. It's good to be back. It is. And um, you're actually with us, mate. We had, we almost didn't have you here very recently. <laughs> all good, all good, a little bit uh, of a health scare. Health scare, but I'm back. Um, mate, this this is the first episode of the uh, the property dream team that we spoke about in, in the first few episodes of yes. you know having that team that every time you go through a property transaction you can always lean on and that. You know, it's a combination of different people, people like mortgage brokers, conveyances, pest and building inspectors, um, and, and a few others. So today we thought we'd, we'd get a mortgage broker on, we'd speak to that broker, get an understanding about what they actually do, what's the difference between a broker and a bank, um, you know, how can they add value, and then also give people some tips on how they can get mortgage ready and obviously maximize um, their ability to, to lend the most amount of money and obviously do it with the best lenders as well. So sure. Jeremy Harper from H Finance, mate, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, Jeremy. Guys. Mate, it's good to have you here. Very good to have you here. Um, mate, so I think a good place to start, I, I mean, the, the majority of the population in Australia now, I think would know what a mortgage broker is, but for the very few people who don't know what a mortgage broker is, mate, give us the 30 seconds spiel. 30 <laughs> seconds, so I think, a big misunderstanding is people just come to a broker just for a product, but the way I look at it is take a client, educate them first before we even look at lenders, mm-hmm. structure up how we're going to do the deal and, and understand their goals and objectives, and then offer them choice. Obviously, if you go to a bank directly, that's the one, one bank, a few different products to choose from, whereas coming to a broker, you're going to have 30 plus lenders to choose from, so more choice, which obviously works out better for the client. Right, so explain that. So obviously when you go to a bank, like you're such a hypothetical, say you go to ANZ. Yep. ANZ, when you say products, I'm assuming you mean they have obviously money they can lend to you and... Well, like they'd what? be a variable loan or a fixed rate loan, I suppose, would Correct. be a couple of the products they have there. Correct, and that's all they'll offer you. And right. legislation came in just recently called Best Interest Duty. And so the banks directly are not governed by that. So they'll just offer you that product. It might not be in your best interest of what you're trying to achieve. But that's all they're going to offer. So and there you why, go. why would a why would a, a, a product with a particular bank or a loan with a particular bank um, not be in someone's best interest? Because if someone's going to a bank, they just want a loan, right? Mm. What what would make it potentially not the right loan for them in comparison to say another loan? So you might go to a bank directly, and one of your objectives is okay. I want to put down minimal cash towards the transaction, but I want to hold on to that cash. But I also want to make sure that you know it's in an offset account. It's working in my best interest for mm-hmm. future use, but the lender might, or the bank directly might not take that on board and they just say, well, here's a product that's, that I think is suitable and they offer that to you and, and off you go. So that's something not working in your best interest, whereas right. if you work with a broker, that's something as a goal or objective we take on board first and then we've got 30 plus lenders to go, right, of those who are in line with what we're trying to achieve and offer those those products in line. So, so are you saying that if you walk, if I walked into a bank and just said, you know, and I might have done my own calcs and said, look, you know, I've got X amount deposit, I just want a million dollar loan to buy an investment property or buy, buy an owner-occupied house, they'll just go, okay, and not ask me any further questions. Whereas you as a mortgage broker will say, well, okay, let's see, tell me why you want a million dollars as in, you know, how maybe there might be a better way we can structure that for you. Yeah. Is it, so you, so a mortgage broker is going to probe a little bit more around, you know, a consumer strategy. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Because obviously everyone, when you speak to a broker or a bank, you only th- that the consumer is only thinking about that transaction at, at that point. But 
you know, trying to, as part of best interest, it's trying to understand what are your goals in the next 12, 24, five years. It might be additional property goals. It might be life. It might be, you know, someone's going on maternity leave. We're going to have a kid. We want to buy that second house. We want to do a renovation. So taking those things into consideration actually is a key component around lender selection. You know, obviously interest rate, getting the best deal is really important, but you know, there's no point going with a lender if you want to do a renovation in 12 months mm. and that bank doesn't do construction loans. You know, you, you're wasting everyone's time, right? Right, okay. So it sounds like when you when you go to a good broker, someone like yourself, they, they tailor it based on you. So similar to what we do when someone comes to us and they say, I've got a million dollars to spend, I want to buy a property. Yeah. We just don't go, here's a property. No, we say, what's first? let's work it backwards. What's your long-term goal or strategy first? Um, because so, so what I'm gathering there, Jeremy, is, you know, it's, a consumer might not know that the product selection that you select for them initially will affect, quite possibly affect what the long-term goal is, whether that's to, to purchase a second or third uh, property down the track. Like they might come to you or a bank saying, I want to purchase a home to live in, right? And if you, they just walked into a bank, the bank would go, okay, we'll do that. Now, if they don't tell the bank or they're not probed by a, a good mortgage broker or someone to say, well, what are your plans down the track? They're not gonna disclose, well, I'm looking at buying one or two investment properties in the next five to 10 to 15 years. So someone like yourself probes with that question, makes them give you the right answers or you know, disclose to them what their long-term strategy is and then you can put the right product for them. Correct, yeah. Right. Excellent. And, and I guess another thing with having a panel of lenders is that a big thing is serviceability, right? Most people want to buy the best quality property they can buy regardless if it's owner-occupier or investment. And as we know, or not everyone, but as I know with lenders, Lots of different lenders look at your situation differently, which is, uh, I'm assuming, what you were saying. So, for self-employed, for example, you know, some lenders look at self-employed very, very different to other mm-hmm. lenders in terms of what income they take in, how, how many years of financials they need, and that can have a significant impact on how much money you can borrow, right? Correct. And so, it's, you know, sometimes people try to be a bit too smart with their accountant. You know, they're running a few businesses, big, <laughs> fancy structure, and where's the money showing? Well, they're, they're being too smart with the ATO. So that's going to work against you if you're trying to, as a self-employed, trying to get a loan. You know, but again, as you're saying, some banks will look at that differently. They want to see someone will assess it on two years financial income, whereas some might look at just the most recent. And so, how does that impact serviceability? So, what I guess what you're saying about a factor of your income and to think about, you know, borrowing capacity. You know, APRA came in last year. They May last year we we started to see the peak of of the credit demand, and that was driven by owner occupier. And so APRA starting to come in, and we'll probably see this as a key theme play out this year is what's called DTI. So it's a factor of your gross income. And this is impacting people's serviceability. And so a lot of banks now are starting to say, okay, well, investment lending, we're going to cap that at a DTI of six. So that's your personal income, your business income, other income, and then how much is your gross borrowings you're trying to go after. And so if you're going over a six, that's going to impact your serviceability. And basically that's it. You cap with that lender. So it'll be six times your net income or gross income. Gross income, yeah. Six times your gross income. Okay. And and for those who don't know, what's DTI? What does that actually stand for? So it's debt to income. Debt to income, right? A debt to income ratio, so to speak. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And not all banks. So this is where it's interesting because not all banks have that in place at the moment. Okay. So you know, you might go to Bank A and they say it's a hard six. That's it. You've you've reached your cap. Whereas you can look at other options where you can extend your capacity a little bit further if you need. 
Right. Okay. Which is like a, like I said, makes a massive difference, right? Because if one lender will lend you say eight hundred grand and one lender will lend you one point one million, yeah. the quality of the asset you're going to get is going to be significantly different. Yeah. And I know from my own personal investing journey, as I was moving through, you know, being buying my first property to buying my third and fourth. Uh, at the start, I did went straight to the ANZ Bank. Mum and Dad <laughs> said, "We'll go. take you in and see the bank manager." That's right. Yeah, at Windsor, um, sat down and we got we got a uh, got a loan, um, and because I didn't have enough to service it, then they cross collateralized that. Ah, with, the good old cross collateralization. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I had to unwind that um, a as like of a times. parent's guarantor, right? Yeah. So, um, again, my parents weren't aware. I had no idea. What, Collateralization, then I just let's go shopping. Yeah. And then you realize down the track that that then has an impact on you know future lending. So you're yes. then going to go back and undo all of that stuff. Um, but I remember going from a, a, a major lender. So I think we went from ANZ to CBA for the second. And then the third one, you know, CBA wouldn't give us as much servicing. So then we went with the second tier lender. I think it was Liberty we used. And that mm. made a significant difference to what we could borrow. So, so what's like, what can the difference be in terms of, say, going to a major lender in comparison to potentially going to a second tier, like a Pepper or a Liberty, in terms of like how much you can service or how flexible they are with terms and stuff like that? Yeah, so the, some of the key differences there is if you've got existing debt, and so if you're an investor and you've got one property, you've got one mortgage, you go into that second one, that's where you can see a real difference in borrowing capacity because some of the, some banks will, it's how they sensitize the existing debt. And so they might factor in say five, six and a half percent as a mortgage repayment on the interest. Whereas some will, will sort of take close to what you're actually paying on that actual repayment. So it can, it can have a huge difference. And then also rental income, right? Some some lenders don't take 100% of the rental income. They'll only take a percentage of the rental income. Is that Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. So that that varies. Most are sort of taking 75, 80% of the gross. Right. Um, something to really consider around that is that's assuming a long-term tenant. So if you want to be you know smart and you want to turn into an Airbnb, fantastic. That can catch people out because banks, well, most banks want to see, because it's basically like a trading entity, an Airbnb, mm. you think, oh, great, I'm now yielding 10% on this Airbnb property, fantastic, but you've got high expenses. So banks want to see you know, a two-year history on that. So right. if you've only f- turned into the Airbnb for six months, you, we now take that property. You've got no rental income. So to they look at it essentially like a business. Like Correct. A, like, you, you know, they Correct. Because, it, because you know, like a short-term lease goes up and down, you're going to have higher vacancies, but then... You, know, you might get much higher income during the summer period. Right, yeah. okay. And one thing I just want to go back on as well, Jeremy, which I personally find fascinating, it's probably a selfish question, is, um, <laughs> is, is with, with self-employed um, people, which is, a, you know, I think as time goes on, more and more people are going to be you know, either companies or they're going to be, um, they're going to be contractors. Um, people don't like paying tax, right? Yeah. The majority of Australians <laughs> well, want to minimise their tax legally as yeah, much course, as they possibly yes. can. But legal minimising your tax and showing no profit and, and sure, you may keep more money in your pocket from, from Mr. ATO and claim more staff, but it has a massive impact on, on, on lending, doesn't it? Yeah, so there's been some movement around product development from even the major banks recently, as in a few of the banks said, okay, provide your, bank, your, your business has been around for a couple of years, and you tick off a few pretty basic requirements, they will, and you pay yourself a wage out of the business, so you pay slip like a regular PIG, and we can show three months of those consistent pay credits, and you don't need the income from the other entities or to service. If you can service off that wage, that's it. Okay. So that's a a good solution because Mm. you might have, your income 
for the financial year last year might have been lower for business, but now what you're paying yourself is higher. So that could be a solution. The other solution is what you call low doc products, where if you've had a change in income in the business from last year, what you've put up towards the ATO versus this year, and you can certify that with you know current BAS statements, business trading accounts, then you can use that the current income for servicing. Right, which is what I, when I just went through on 4 Finance, that's what I went through. I think Brands was yep. the lender. Mm. Um, and obviously last year in comparison to this year was a significant difference with the size of the business and the income. And then, yeah, there was lots of things we could do to, to still Yeah, so I think people traditionally always think, oh, I have to wait two years of mm. historical data, which can take a long time, right? Like by the time it's lodged and you get all the, the tax returns back from the ATO. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so going back, Jeremy, just on the... You know, let's just say a sophisticated investor with, a, with a two to three properties comes in and, you know, so they've got, they've already got not only the, you know, the wage from the, the job, but they've got two to three rental incomes coming in. Mm-hmm. And you touched on it before, like Jack mentioned, that they won't take 100% of that rental income into account. Um, now, these could be long-term secure tenants where, you know, they could have been renting the the investment properties for three years with zero vacancies. Yeah. So why is it then that, you know, the lenders won't take 100%? Is it because, you know, and probably COVID was a great example. I know I had to do this with, with my own properties where, um, you know, rents sort of fell overnight as yeah. tenants sort of, you know, young people handed back in the keys and said, I'm going back to live with mum and dad because I can't afford the rent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, landlords had to drop their rents uh, significantly. So is it because of that, I suppose, uh, volatility in rents? A little bit of that. It's also just taking a buffer for, you know, ongoing expenses. So if you, everyone's going to have like a management, you know, agent management in there. Fee, so that's right. what's that, seven, six five, or seven percent, five, yeah, six, seven five, percent. Yeah. Plus your ongoing, so you're like your cleaning and your repairs. Right. And strata, strata, and so some rates, some right. banks will assess that differently. They'll take, they'll clip the, the gross rental at a higher percentage, and then that, that will that will be where you capture your rental expenses. But some will take lower, so they'll take a higher percent of the gross, and then they want you itemise and say, okay, well, you know, what's your strata, what's your council rates? Right. Okay. As so part it's, of living it's primarily for the expenses because yeah, it's great you're bringing in the rental income. But as a property investor, you have those expenses. You have, you've got to pay the council rates, you've got to pay for a strata unit, you've got to pay strata, you've got to pay water, you've got yeah. to have repairs and maintenance, and you're going to have possibly some vacancy. And, and you know, I, I just I was looking at a client just recently, they had only two properties in Sydney, two really blue chip properties, but mm. now, because they're both investment, land tax. Oh, land tax, yes. So land tax bill is about 25,000 a year. <laughs> so you talk about that impacting your service, because you can't get around that. No because values are going up, so everyone's getting that new assessment. You can only uh, go interstate and exactly. you know, put one in your wife's name, one in your name, because everyone yeah. gets a different threshold. Well, that's a Don't tell the ATO too that's, much, Frank. That's <laughs> <a whole thing. laughs> they, they know, they know, don't worry. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's no secret. <laughs> Jeremy, I think another thing with, um, especially with investing in property and, and, and you know people always wanting to, especially like avid in property investors, right? We work with a lot of them and I think as, as it, it, we're moving into an information age, we're already in it, more and more people are seeing how they can make money through property. So I think it's becoming a more normal thing now. Um, but there's this misconception around positively and negatively geared property. And uh, with the positively geared stuff, I think there's a misconception in people's heads that when they buy a positively geared property, if it makes them say $100 positive cash flow a week, that that debt has zero impact on their servicing because the rent's covering it. That's, yep. that's a misconception, isn't it? Correct. Right. So regardless if your property is positively or negatively geared, the debt attached to that property is still going to have this, 
essentially the same impact on your servicing. Mm. The only difference would be the, the difference in cash flow, yeah? Correct. Uh, I mean, the, obviously the more loans you take out, so if you're going down that strategy of, I'm gonna have five you know, properties all across Australia at small value and they're gonna be all positively cash flow, Again, they'll all get a haircut, the rent, and then the existing mortgages will all be sensitized at that five and a half, six percent on the actual repayment. And typically, those type of structures, you see that the they're set up to be interest-only repayments, so they're not the investors not paying P and I on that mortgage. Yes, which I wanted to. And so about. it's been sold as positively cash flow with an interest-only repayment. But from a bank point of view, let's say you you take a 30-year mortgage and it's a five-year interest only, the bank will look at that not with the interest only period, they'll look at amortizing and sensitizing loan over a 25-year period. So it actually works against you. Every time you take out an interest only loan from a serviceability versus taking out a P&I loan as an investor, mm. it actually works against in terms of future borrowing capacity. Right, and what about if you you know get an interest-only loan and then you'll go a couple of years and then again. refinance and get another thirty-year loan term? Well, before that five-year interest-only period, yep, you, can, you can go and refinance. You can definitely and get do that, but it's just making sure that obviously the bank will service you based on your existing interest-only lending. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And Frank, you were going to mention something around. Well, no, just you brought up you know P and I versus interest-only. Um, you know, I know. Well, I don't know. You tell me. It, what do what do lenders prefer? I think they prefer that for you know borrowers to be on P and I, right? Well, definitely own occupied. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to write an, an interest only own occupied loan because yeah. you basically I I haven't written one. It's, you're basically telling the bank we can't afford P and I on the house we live in. You'd have to have pretty substantial circumstances. Maybe you know something's happening to your business or a reduction of income for a short period of time and that might get approved. But then on the investor side, yeah, you've got interest only in P&I. I think traditionally, you know, going back to 2015 when they made all the changes around serviceability, it was sort of like this perpetual, and this is how people built these huge portfolios of smaller value properties, because they'd go and get something, they'd rent it for $300 a week, and then they'd just go interest only. And the bank back then would look at that and go, well, that covers yeah, the repayment, great. Let's not worry about it for servicing. And that's why people could just keep going again and again and again. Right, so that was an old, that, that was possible years ago. Because 2015, banks were looking at what are you paying on that interest only loan? And that's what they'd factor in for servicing. Wow. But now it's completely different. So if you're, you, that sort of strategy would, you'd run it into a roadblock after a couple of properties. Right. And so that'd be again with your income. So well, that was when APRA then came in and put caps on banks or lenders in regards to what percentage of their book. lending book Correct. could be interest-only loans, right? And Correct. some of them are well over, and that's why they put a halt in, you know, because it was investors. If you look at the, 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 the mix of lending between investors and owner, it was just going like this at that right. period, yeah. and they were taking over market investors yeah. because... They really know, put a sledgehammer on the market, overkill, as, as APRA often does. Um, but then obviously they, they loosened the, the strings a few years later, didn't they? Yeah. But I think in the short term, if APRA does things like that, they're short term pain, but they're still long term pain. Of course, you know, and when it was happening, you know, I said, this can't go on forever. It might go on for a few years and then they'll start, you know, once things get in, back into control. And, you know, that's APRA's job to, to ensure things stay in control. Or well, we can just let it go it. and just <laughs> see what happened in the US. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, mate. I think we've covered off enough investing and, and chatting about the actual finance products and all the rest of it. I think from what I got from that was, if you go directly to a bank, the bank's gonna give you what they have, which may be one or two things. If you go to someone like yourself, 
you're gonna be able to understand their situation, understand their goals and objectives, and then place them in strategically what's going to be best for them right now, but then also down the track. And you'll be able to guide them. You know, you may go with one lender for this property, and then you might go for this lender for this property mm -hmm. and be able to strategically place them. Um, <clears throat> when someone comes to you, especially first home buyers, um, and it was funny, I referred a girl to you the other day, and she goes, oh, speaking with Jeremy, I learned more in the 30 minutes I spoke with him than I learned spending two, two or three hours with the guy at NAB. Um, so mate, congratulations on that. Um, and like, you know, a lot of people think that they're ready to borrow because they may have some cash sitting in the bank, but you know, then they get a reality check when they go and see someone like you and you say, well, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. So what are the most common things that or most pitfalls people don't understand when they go to someone like yourself to say that let's go and buy a property? And yeah, I guess the maximizing the borrowing, yeah? Because that's yeah, to be able usually to, what most people want to do. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think firstly, it's you know doing a draft servicing to see where they sit today in terms of income, expenses, you know, look at their liabilities. So what have they got there that we can work on before the application? They might have credit cards open. They might have credit cards with a balance. Um, we were saying before, you know, if you've got limits, so the banks will look at a card with a limit and that will work against your borrowing capacity. So, you know, 20,000 in credit card limits can reduce your borrowing capacity by a couple hundred thousand. Wow. That's massive. So, yeah, it's really Even if it's got a zero number on it. Correct. Yeah. And that's even if, you know, like me, I pay off my, I pay, put everything on a credit card, but when that statement comes, I pay it off in full so I don't pay a cent in interest. You know me, Jack, I don't want to pay interest, right? Um, so, you know, if somebody comes and says, but Jeremy, I pay off my credit card debt, I never pay interest, it doesn't matter because basically you've got, with that credit card, you could go rogue and have the ability to clock up 10 or 20 grand's worth of debt and not pay it back, you Correct. know, or pay back $15 a month or whatever they want. Exactly, so you get yourself in a bit of, bit of trouble. A bit of bad debt, as we call it. So look at that, you know, if they've got, so I, my, my recommendation would be just, even if you do it for the points, the, the frequent five points, but no one's flying anywhere. Mm. So get rid of that. No one except Jack's flying anywhere. I just got back from Dubai. So one of the things that, you know, a broker once told me is, uh, you know, get rid of the credit card, cancel it. Now, once you get the loan, you know, if you really want to go back and apply for a credit card again, yep. right? It's just get rid of it for the, the servicing period. Correct. At least, you know. And, and even a lot of mortgage products do have the option to include, if you go particularly an annual fee, and it's a package product, mm. they will offer a credit card. Yeah, they try and give fee. one to you, don't so they? So you can always apply for that yeah. down the track. Okay. So you were saying, how much would it, like if you've got 10 or 20 grand credit card limits, right, not not debt, limit, Yeah. how much would that yeah, affect can, your borrowing capacity? Yeah, it can take 100, 150,000 that's amazing. I don't think a lot of people know that. So, and then and also looking at things like, you know, if you've got after pay, the zip pays, just oh, get, yeah. get rid of them. Frank loves a bit of afterpay. No, you can tell he's very fashionable. He gets on the Gucci website. <laughs> <laughs> no Gucci for me and no afterpay or zip pay for me, mate. I'm, I'm old school. Just a credit card for the points and uh, pay it off uh, every month. <laughs> yep. And if you've got, you know, if you've, if you've taken out a car loan, try and work on paying that off. You know, see if you can get yourself into a, loan, a car loan. If you've got one open where it'll just allow additional repayments, some of them are quite restrictive. Or if you're thinking about, you know, taking out a car loan, understand that, if you do, that's going to have a huge impact on your borrowing capacity. So getting so, rid of all that bad debt, the credit correct. card debt, the car debt. What about your DJ's, your Myers card? Same thing. If they've got like a store card, if they've yeah. got a, a limit, they treat exactly the same as a credit card. Credit card basically is the same, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd get rid of those. You know, a lot of first home buyers have a hex debt if they've been uni. Mm. Um, you know, that is the cheapest debt in the market. It's pegged to the, the, the central rate. So my recommendation would be if you can keep it open and take the mortgage, that's fine. 
if it's a small balance, understand that the way the banks will look at it is it's a percentage of your gross income, not the balance. So if you've only got a couple of thousand outstanding on your hex, it might be worthwhile using some of your deposit to pay that off. Use a credit card to pay it off. Get <laughs> <laughs> points and then pay your credit card off. Yeah. And then you can yeah. use your credit card for X net. It's It'll been a while be... since I had one. <laughs> It'll increase your, your borrowing capacity similar to a credit card as well. Right, mm. okay. So essentially the, the, the short answer is get rid of all your bad debt. And then, you know, you said with, with when someone comes to you, you'll do a, a, an example serviceability, which I think I, I always guide people to do before they even think about buying. Because a lot of people have no idea how much money they can spend. You know, yeah. they earn 50 grand a year, they earn $250,000 a year. Very few people go, oh, I can spend that much money. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the people are actually shocked at how much they can spend. Especially oh, yeah. when they earn a good income. They go, I didn't yeah. realize the bank would lend me that much. So for, if maybe they're not deposit ready yet for money that they think they can spend, would you say it's beneficial to go to a broker and say, hey, this is what I earn, this is what my expenses are, how much could I spend? Correct. And then at the end, it gives you a saving goal or gives you a, a goal to aim towards so you know when you hit this target, then you're ready to buy. And you can probably do those other little things along the way, like getting rid of the bad debts and, yeah. and stuff like that. Start, start putting a bit of a plan in place. But it's not just that, it might also be, you know, if, if I'm sitting down doing some draft servicing and, and there's a couple, maybe let's say one's working, so we do the servicing based on that but potentially the other one might do some part-time work. Work out what is, you know, a bit of a what-if scenario. What does your borrowing capacity look like if we've got a second wage? Because the, the way the Australian tax system works, right, your first 20 odd years, 18, 18 is tax-free. Tax yeah. From a borrowing capacity, it, it doesn't take a lot of taxable income for that second applicant for you to increase your borrowing capacity. So, you know, an extra 30,000, so say someone goes from zero taxable income to a $30,000 part-time job, or, you know, however, 30,000 per year, that can add three, 400,000 in borrowing capacity for the family. So really? wow. maybe that's a conversation where you say, all right, if we've got one person working, what does that look like? If we've got one person working and one person part-time, what does that look like in terms of borrowing capacity? Right, so put, yeah, like you said, putting a plan together and then if you know you've still got six or 12 months before you're actually mm. gonna buy, you can then get the, the part-time job in place, you get the pay slips, you've got a, you know, uh, an income that they, the bank can, can follow. Yep. Um, and then you sort of work through all of those little things like you might pay out, like you said, a, a credit card and get rid of that or yeah. you know, decrease the limit down to $1,000, for example. Yeah. Um, so Jeremy, I think most people are aware that, you know, assuming they can, you know, that, that nobody's gonna come into a, a mortgage, see a mortgage broker or a bank without having a job, right? <laughs> now, I think they know that they can comfortably, well, you know, the word on the street is, well, the bank or the, the lender will, will always, you know, lend you up to eight, up to 80% mm -hmm. of the of the property value. So yeah. you've got to come up with a 20% deposit. What if somebody wants to borrow more, wants to borrow nine, you know, 85 or, or 90%? Yeah. Um, or 95. Sorry, or even 95 we were talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about that. How, you know, there's a thing called lender's mortgage insurance. I don't think people understand quite what that is. Yep. Um, so if, if I walk in and say, look, I've got a 10% deposit, I want to therefore borrow 90%, can I do it? Yep. Good question. So the way it works is traditionally, if you don't have a 20% deposit, the bank will go to a insurer and take out a policy on your behalf and they charge that policy. So typically the insurer is Genworth QBA in Australia and that premium of that is added to the base of the loan and then it's repaid over the life of the loan. So there's been some change in products in this space, which is, which is really good. So number one, if you're speaking specifically to owner-occupied, you buying something to live in, there's a number of lenders that have very minimal restrictions and will allow an 85% no LMI. 
So you don't have to, it doesn't have to be industry specific your job. So the only drawback is it's slightly high interest rate on the 80%, okay. obviously, because they've got to make some money, yeah. but that's a great way. So 15% deposit. The second option is 90% null and minor, and that's a bit more industry specific. So if you're an accountant, lawyer, engineer, medical, what about a buyer's agent? Buyer's no, agent, no. I not, not quite on the list. No, no, you have to be a CPA like me, mate. So you, as long as you tick off some requirements, you can, the, the bank will waive the LMI, yeah. which is a really good, That's good. Yeah. works out really well. So you can get up to 90% with no LMI? Correct, if you're, if you can If you're one of those professional, correct. what do they call them? Shouldn't have got expelled from school. Professional careers. And then you can, doing okay, mate. you can go up to that 95%. So just bear in mind that the way mortgage insurance works is obviously it can start from 80%. It's a sliding scale. So once you hit 88% base, so 12% deposit, if you've got less than that, the cost of the premium really starts to skyrocket. Mm. And so that's obviously because there's more risk, right? More risk. Right. And so when you say 95%, it's really 92% base yeah. plus the premium. So they add the premium of 2.5-3%, which gets you 95%. Right. But the borrower still has to come up with 8%. So when you hear 95, don't think 5% deposit, right. work on 8%. But realistically, I'd be recommending if you can't get those waivers, work towards a 12% deposit because that's going to get you an LMI premium that's not too expensive. Right. And it might work out to say, okay, well, I've got 12%. Instead of having to try and save up the extra 3 or the 8% to get into 20 I could pay this premium. It's added to the life alone and then I'm into the property. So, so how is the uh, how is the premium calculated? Because you often hear, well, LMI can be anywhere from 10 grand to 20 grand, maybe mm. more. Mm. Um, is it calculated based on, well, you know, if I want 90% of a million dollar loan, the LMI is gonna be less than 90% of a $2 million loan? Yes. Is it based on the value it's of the all, loan? It's all risk. So it's obviously risk, if you're right. going for one and a half, two million dollar purchase and you're trying to get 90%, the, the premium is going to be extremely high. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get something for four, five hundred thousand and you're, it's an 88% LVR, then the, the premium is going to be yeah. a lot, lot lower. So it's essentially the, how much risk that the lender's taking on yeah. board. And then <laughs> the funny thing about LNMI, and correct me if I'm wrong, I may be misunderstanding that, is that it covers the bank, not the lender. I was just about to correct. say that. So That's the bank right. gets their money back and then yeah. they come after you. You know, we, we think, most consumers think of an insurance policy, you know, I insure my car, <laughs> I insure my house, I pay a premium and, uh, you know, that I'm getting insurance. But no, this is, the bank is covering themselves, but pa- charging the insurance premium to you. Yes. Right? But that's the benefit of you being able to, well, of getting and, more money out of them, I suppose. And they take security over the house as well. Yeah. So. It's a good system, isn't it? The banking <laughs> system. Um, but, and, and sorry to cut you off, Frank. You're right. The, uh, the, the, I guess there's some first-time buyer incentives now, which, you know, it's probably the best time ever to be a first-time buyer in Australia, I think, with 5% no lenders mortgage insurance and then potentially a stamp duty yeah, and, and record low interest rates yeah. in the current environment yeah so there's three there's obviously the national body which is the housing association that administers the first home low deposit scheme so they offer ten thousand spots per year and so basically the government came in and said well a lot of a lot of first-time buyers have been using parents property as guarantor in lieu of a 20 percent deposit and so they opened up this program to say well if a first-time buyer doesn't have parents that can use properties collateral They'll do 80% against the, the property they're trying to buy, and then the government will offer basically like a security bond for the 15%. So you, the borrower comes in with the 5% cash. So the benefit to that is obviously you don't pay your LMI. You can hold on to that cash and you can put that towards the property or you can use that on the stamp duty. 
Um, there are, the casino and just enjoy yourself. <laughs> there's quite a few restrictions on that though to get into it. It can be yeah. a bit tricky. It's yeah, there's a wait list. You know, the, the government, like any of these programs, the government's trying to get first home buyers into new property, new apartments, house mm. and lands. Really good assets. Yeah. <laughs> the government trying to. I was going to say the yeah. government trying to get you into the best assets you know, possible. Yeah, that's a that's <laughs> a whole other story about you know where you know taking that that free money, so to speak, from the government, but buying then a, a, a non-performing asset in the long run. But if it's, if it's free, you're the product. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the, you know, there's price restrictions on that. So in terms of if you're trying to How buy- you spend. Yeah, if you're trying to buy into, say, New South Wales Metro, 800,000 is the limit. So if you go over that, not eligible. There's also income restrictions, which kind of, you know, I find that a bit silly because if you're living in Sydney and you're trying to buy, you're going to have a certain income. But it's you know one twenty five a single, two fifty is a couple. Is your taxable income anything over? You're not eligible. Um, the other options are stamp duty, which is at the state level. So anything up to six fifty established, no stamp duty, which I think saves about twenty five thousand. And then that's a sliding scale in terms of down to eight hundred thousand purchase price. So you'll be between six fifty and eight hundred. Um, you still pay some stamp duty. Yeah, yeah. So if you buy something close to eight hundred, you're not really getting anything. Yeah. Which probably I'd say, well, if that's the case. Don't be restricted with the 800 if you can go higher. More, yeah. Because you're not really going to save them. But if you can stay the 650, great. And then there's also the cash grant of 10,000 if you're buying, buying new. new or building new. Yeah, so that, look, you know, when so I started borrowing. What the developers do is they just add 10,000 yeah. to the price of their that's property. Right. Well, that's why, you know, we, we don't advocate buying off uh, developers, so to speak. <laughs> um, but it's quite interesting. I know when I first uh, started buying my first property at 19, Jeremy, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, there was none of this. I never got any first home buyer grant. You know, I did get, you know, a leg up for my parents. You know, I think my parents put a second mortgage on their house because um, I didn't have a deposit. I can't even remember, you know, how I got into it, but my dad worked for a bank. <laughs> um, so he, he sorted it all out. Um, so it's interesting though, you know, with the LMI, um, so, you know, it, there's a big difference between being able to borrow 90%, you know, and paying that bit of LMI versus borrowing 80%. Now, you know, a borrower might come and say, well, why would I want to pay LMI? I'll just spend the next two and a half years saving for that extra 10%. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the key here is, you know, it's you, the way the market has been and can be quite often is that, the, you know, the quicker you can get into the market, even though you pay that LMI, you know, premium, mm. Um, the market, the capital growth, the equity you will make in that two and a half to three years while you're trying to save that extra 10%, will be much larger than you know the rate at which you can borrow uh, you can save so basically it takes a long time to save you're saving out of you know after tax dollars yep. versus paying it LMI getting into the market two and a half years earlier and you know if the market's going watching it grow at five to ten to you know, <coughs> lately twenty five percent so I think that's a really you know good key something you know it shouldn't be something that's discounted by consumers that well, you know, I don't want to pay an extra 10 to 15 grand. Why would I? I'll just save because the 10 to 15 grand, the property will grow quicker than you can save. Yeah, I think it's, it's case by case, right? Of Where course, in New South yeah. Wales, so the marketplace is, is extremely dynamic, but in different parts of Australia, it may or may not. Of course, yeah. So I think it's looking at the marketplace that you're in, looking at, yeah. you know. But my point is, it's, it's an option that people should consider. It's, it's, I think it's great. It's leverage. Yeah. Like if you can leverage yeah. someone else's money, get into the marketplace. And we've got a great case study on this. So we bought a property um, in June of last year, in 2021, for a first home buyer, $650,000, two bedroom apartment in Merriweather in, in uh, Newcastle. So it was 32,500 deposit, no lender's mortgage insurance, no stamp duty, paid 650. 
Bang, bought it, settled, put a tenant in there, got it valued last, not the Friday that just went, the Friday before at $810,000. So we had a $160,000 uplift. We bought it well, Mm. but the market's obviously doing great things up there. So all of a sudden now, he's in with 32,500, he paid a minimal bit of stamp duty, or no, paid no no lender's mortgage insurance, sorry. Um, And now all of a sudden his LVR is not 95%, it's now at 76% 76% or well, something. That's a big drop. Yeah, so now what he can do is go back to the bank, and refinance, yeah, pull out the minor the equity that he has, put that in an offset account, so he's back at 80-20, um, use that cash for another deposit, but you know now he's sitting at, at, a, at an awesome LBR. Mm. So that example absolutely works oh, yeah, because yeah. there's no way in the world he could have saved the extra 15%, yeah. plus then the market's increased by 160,000 for the same property in a six month period. And then if you go down to like a micro level on that and go, okay, 32,500 invested, what's the cash on cash return? Mm. It's 500%. (laughs) That's Bitcoin numbers (laughs) in six months, 500% cash on cash return. You put 32,000 in, you've now got 160. He borrowed the rest, it's not his money. (laughs) Exactly, and he's an owner occupier too. So really if he sold it, the only cost he'd have just releasing that money would Mm. be uh, an agent's 2% fee. Right. Um, so that's a, a great example of when it can work, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, if, if, imagine doing that in a marketplace that wasn't as dynamic. Of you, course, yeah. You went LMI and <laughs> you know, the market did the yeah. opposite thing. Yeah. But like, you know, if you're an owner occupier, you don't want to be renting or living with your parents for another two and a half to three years. You, yeah. you want to get that place for yourself. So, you know. You don't want to live with your parents until you move out. Then when you move out and realize how expensive living is, you <laughs> want to move right. back in with your parents. <laughs> that's right. So Jeremy, you know, you talk about, you know, going to a mortgage broker over a bank, 25 to 30 lenders that mortgage broker has at their disposal. Um, And obviously, you know, and Jack touched on it before, there's tier one being your big four banks, you know, ANZ, NAB, Westpac, CBA, et cetera. Um, Then you've got your probably your two tier, tier two, tier three, I don't know how many tiers are there. And what are the differences? Who are these others? Are they credit unions? Um, You know, there's, there's Bank of Queensland, Bendigo Bank, are they tier ones? Are they tier twos? Um, you know, what are the differences between each? Because I think, you know, most people, they don't see ads, you know, they see the ads on TV for the big four, they don't see the ads for Pepper and Liberty and, and the like. Yeah. Um, so what, what can you tell us a bit and, about what yeah, the difference what is? The differences are and why someone would use them over another lender, mm. I think is super important. So, well, I mean, I think from a big four, the way they traditionally calculate its market cap. So I think if you say big four, you have to put Macquarie in there now. Well, true, Because yeah. now their market cap's bigger than ANZ and Westpac, so they're typically actually... Are a big four, there you go. They're a big yeah. four. They're a big three now. And, and if, you actually, if you look at their mortgage book growth, it's far, it's just head and shoulders above wow. some of those, particularly like your Westpac and ANZ that have been struggling on their growth. Mm. But going back to your question, why you'd use some of those prime, like if you think about prime, non-prime, so primes like you, you know, everyone can get those banks, you know, your big four. But like your Macquarie's, your ING's, they can come out with better interest rates, better products, better customer service, you know, particularly someone like Macquarie, their banking, their digital platform, it's probably market leading. I'd say they're only just behind CBA. CBA's probably got the best. is incredible. They're in in terms of their technology, they're number yeah. one, but yeah. so some of these smaller <laughs> players have better offering technology and, and the credit unions, better customer service, okay. you know, the call centers are, you know, locally. And then you've got the internationals, you've got HSBC, for example, yep. as well. Um, so, right. but, but what would be the difference? Like, why would someone choose that? Obviously, branding is everything, right? The reason, like you said, market cap's one thing, but then obviously brand, everyone mm. knows them yep. on a day-to-day basis. But say someone like Liberty or Pepper, unless you're going through a mortgage broker, you part of the time you wouldn't even know these people exist. Mm. Like, yeah, correct. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, Macquarie doesn't have 
really a branch network. ING doesn't have any branch. I think 80 to 90% of all loans for ING, which is, a, is I think, a fifth or sixth bank, all come for a broker. So they have to be, you know, brokers have to be a very good advocate for them. But as I said, you, you'd go for them because the overall customer experience. So in terms of when, when you call up and you've got an issue with them, their rates are better than the, the big four. Um, what you find sometimes clients get a bit sort of upset with the bigger banks because the way they offer pricing to new customers, they'll offer cashbacks to try and get people into the bank, yeah. but they don't look after the customers that have been there for 10 years. Yeah. And, and so that's why people want to leave from a maybe finding a new bank. Um, and also from a credit policy point of view, and that's probably the key thing. So some banks that are a bit more nimble around their credit policy, they might recognize some types of income a bit better than the larger banks that will work in favor of some for quite a few customers so to give you an example you know someone might be getting paid commissions or bonuses and that's a big part of their income maybe some of the traditional banks might look at that differently shade back your borrowing capacity whereas you go to some other these smaller ones that have a bit more of a common sense approach they go oh yeah you know what we can see that you've been earning huge amount of commission over the last couple of years we're going to take that as regular pay, and why should we? Whereas some of the, the big mm. ones might say, you know, we'll shave that back when we take 80%. So, so I like what you said there about a common sense approach, because everybody is different when yep. they come in with their financials and what they earn and things like that. Whereas, so are you saying, you, you know, your typical big four or five banks, they've got a policy in place that we put that into the computer system and I'm sorry, you know, I can see you've earned, you know, a 50 grand bonus consistently for the last 10 years, but my system says I can only take 60% of that where, you know, we come into you and you go, well, with this second tier lender, they give me some discretion here or they have discretion, whereas, you know, it's, 10, it's 50 grand for the last 10 years consistently, we can take probably 80% of that. Correct, yeah. Okay, right. that's, that's good. So it's more good. flexibility. Um, when you say lower interest rates, would you say like the liberties and peppers of the world, their interest rates are generally a little bit higher, right? Well, the way they, those type of lenders, so that I'd classify them as your non-prime. Right. So okay. that's sort of, you got your prime, which if it's not a big four, your prime, like ING, your Macquarie, your Bank of Queensland, they, you know, you'd heard of them, household names, good interest rates, good fees, reasonable, you know, great service. Your non-prime is more, you're going to go to those type of lenders traditionally, you know, like your Liberties, your Latrobe, your Peppers, if you may be credit impaired, so you've had an issue with your credit historically, mm. maybe it's a low doc, there's something with your financials that you need, you know, for some reason you need to go there or from a serviceability point of view. Uh, and so when you go to them, they'll price it based on your scenario. So right. what's your LVR? So if it's a high LVR, yeah, it's gonna be a high interest rate versus, you know, your, your traditional banks. And then, you know, what's your credit? what's the type of security you're taking, and that will form part of what the actual rate they'll charge. Right. Yeah. So as a consumer, if you know, a consumer comes in and you, know, you sit down with them and at the end of the day you say, look, I think the best product for you, you know, to get your maximum borrowing capacity is to go with a Liberty or a Pepper, mm. um, and they go, well, who are they? I've never heard of them. Should a consumer be concerned about that? No, these are, these are reputable financial institutions, right? Yeah, they shouldn't no, be concerned. Correct, if you look at Pepper, they're listed on the ASX, so you can read their financials. Okay. All, all the information is available online. Even with the credit unions, like if you if if a broker recommends a smaller credit union, mm. you know, understand that okay, you have to become a member. And again, you go onto that website of that credit union, they will publish their financials. You can see how long they've been around for. You understand where their deposits come from, which form part of their lending. So, and a lot of the time, these lenders are 
all these subprimes are backed by the major lenders, aren't they? Like Correct. money for the major mm. lenders. That's to, right. Anyway, to rebrand yeah. the money. Yeah. So what, what's interesting though is you know we touched on some of these uh, you know smaller lenders or, or second tier lenders uh, might charge you a slightly higher interest rate. But if they can lend you an extra $300,000, mm. right, and your interest rate is 0.5% higher than one of your big four, um, you know, so what? Uh, you know, because with that extra 300,000, might be able to buy you that house you're after or might be able to buy you a better investment property in a better location. Yes, you're gonna be paying at 0.5% more or even just let's just say it's 1% more in, in interest rate. Because I think a lot of people get stuck up on interest rates and just walk into a bank, into a broker and say, give me the cheapest interest rate. We can give, you know, you can give them the cheapest interest rate, but you, you know, you'll lend them 200 grand less. Yep. So I think if you can, you know, talk, we talk about borrowing as much as possible, uh, comfortably obviously, you know, if you can borrow more but pay slightly higher interest rate, but it gets you into the market quicker, you know, it, it can be quite beneficial. For sure. And it's all about working out the numbers, right? Mm. You get an extra 300 grand, what does 7% growth look like on a $1.5 million there property compared it's to... It's going to well outweigh the, yeah. the, the additional interest. And if you're an investor, the interest is tax deductible anyway. And so. looking, looking at that as a product, so yes, it's, you know, you might be taking with a non-prime lender, it might be a 30-year mortgage, but the idea would be maybe after a year or two, refinance them out. So a lot of those bigger, you know, like your Pepper, for example, you can change products internally. So it's not a refinance, so they can, they can redo your rate if you've tick off a few things after a while. So once you build some equity, for example, maybe you've improved maybe your credit, for whatever the reason you've gone there, or you can refinance that into a prime lender and, yeah. and get that, that market leading rate. Yeah, so, I, know, I know I've done that before where, you know, I've, uh, my borrowing capacity was getting a bit capped. So, you know, my broker said, well, we'll get you in with uh, Pepper. Look, you're going to be paying a, a little bit more in interest, but it'll get you that in, that next investment property you want. After two, two and a half years, you know, we'd refinance. There was equity had grown. Yeah. You know, so I got that investment property. It grew in a couple of years. Um, refinanced out with um, you know one of the majors then at a, at a much cheaper interest rate, and, bor- and, 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 and borrowed a little bit more to get up to that eighty percent uh, LVR on that property. Yeah. Yeah. Solid. Mate, I think that gives us a pretty good overview of, of brokers and- just, uh, Yeah, no, we'll just, one more, Jack. One this, more? This has been a long one. Frank, so, he's pumped. No, I think that one of the best things about going to a broker from a consumer point of view is it's free, right? Well, it doesn't cost a consumer anything yeah. because you get paid by the lenders. Is that correct? That's correct. All right, yeah. so- and, and so- So you're not like us. We get paid by the, by the by consumer. The <laughs> correct. And so that gets paid after the loan settles. So all that work that, well, I mean, every broker's different. Some do charge a fee, they'll let you know, but- Okay, so some do actually charge a free fee. Yeah, so it's usually impo- brokers who don't do much business charge So a it's fee important to ask that up front. Run the other way from those. When you- ask that up front um, and they'll send you a quote up front okay. if they do. But if, they, if, if the broker just gets a commission from the bank, that will get given or paid to the broker after the loan gets settled. So all that pre, settlement work that the broker does with, with the client. It's sort of, there's no invoice from the broker to the client for that. Nice, yeah. nice. Then there's some scumbag clients who go to multiple brokers, play them off against each other, get them to do all the work and then choose <laughs> one and all the others get left in the dust. Don't be one of those people. Um, <laughs> mate, I think that was, that was really solid. That was good, A lot of, lot of gold in there. It's been yeah. about, a, I think it's about a, what, 45, 50 minutes, yeah. Very good. Very good. Mate, thank all you right, very Jeremy, much for coming thank you on. Very much. Not a problem. Major. Thanks guys.